Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You that these songs are not just merely full of words that are meaningless to us, but that they are full of substance and full of just um, heartfelt love and gratitude for You and for what You've done. Thank You for the grace of Christ. Thank You for this morning that we have the opportunity to see once again the gospel of the grace of Christ on the pages of Your Holy Word. Impress upon us, Father, the assurance of our salvation for those of us who are in Christ. And Lord, impress upon us this morning the need to be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ alone and to be made right with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We went away from the Gospel of Mark. We were talking a lot in Mark chapter 7, if you remember, about legalism. Jesus really coming after the legalists of his day. And it really, uh, the Lord just really impressed upon my heart the need to um, not only um, talk more about how we ought to reject legalism in our lives, but also what does sanctification involve and look like in our lives as believers. So we began just to mini two-part sermon uh, last week, and we'll go back to Mark chapter 7 next Sunday, okay? But Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 13 is our text for this morning, in particular verse 13, but let me read 5, 1 and 5, 13, okay? This is the Word of God. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then look down in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is the Word of God. Well, last week we began, as I said, looking at this issue, this very important issue of Christ-centered Sanctification, and I told you this that neither legalism nor license to sin are Christ centered sanctification. Listen to that statement again neither legalism nor license are Christ centered sanctification. And at various points in our Christian lives, we can struggle with one or both of these. Legalism is a struggle on the one hand for every Christian. As I said last week, on the very basic level, uh, legalism can rear its ugly head um, in the lives of people where people really begin to believe that salvation is by good works, that they can actually measure up to God's perfect standard and thereby be um, made right with God by their own human works. But legalism also rears its ugly head in different ways, different forms and shapes and all of that. Um, There is a certain type of cultural legalism that we can struggle with even in the Christian church where we begin to think that, yes, my conversion was based upon the grace of Christ, but then in my sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus, it's all about my works. It's all about my human effort. It's all about my performance that keeps me in the right with God. We can struggle with that as Christians. The more that we walk with the Lord is especially a danger because we can be very disciplined in our spiritual disciplines, be really striving for faithfulness, and we can be guilty of uh, falling prey to uh, putting our faith in our faithfulness rather than our faith in the person and the work of Christ. Legalism can also rear its ugly head when we reduce Christianity to a mere rule-based religion devoid of heart worship, or when we create man-made rules not found in Scripture. Maybe we impose our man-made rules that go beyond what's written. Our preferences become things that we not only um, bind our own consciences with, but we impose those on other people's consciences as well. Things that go beyond what is written in the Word of God. These are all ways that legalism rears, rears its ugly head in our lives, even as believers. And I encourage us with the fact last week that if we are to reject legalism and grow in Christ, be sanctified in Christ, then first and foremost, you and I must stand firm in our position in Christ. We must stand firm in our position in Christ. And this is very practical, isn't it? 
Assurance of salvation is so important in the life of the believer. Obviously, if you are walking in sin as a believer, if you are walking in the flesh, even though you might be secure in Christ, if you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might not experience the benefits of your justification. Things like joy and peace and all of those things. Assurance may not be a reality that you experience because of the fact that God, a loving Heavenly Father, is squeezing you to get you to recognize that you need to repent of that sin in your life, right? But assurance is so important for us as believers, and it's very practical. You know, this week I visited an elderly uh, Christian man from our church um, at the hospital, and uh, we had a great time. You know, but I could tell that he was very uncomfortable that he was in a lot of pain, that he really wanted to get out. In fact, one of the things that he talked about a couple of times is that he wanted to get back to serving here at the church. He didn't want his post to be uh, vacant where he serves. So he wanted to get back. And, you know, it was such a wonderful time with him. And above all, what struck me is this man's joy. I mean, throughout the whole time, we must have laughed most of the time when I was there. And, you know, you know when you go visit people who are sick at the hospital, you don't always know what you're going to get. But he was so joyful. At one time, at one point, I asked him, Brother, how is your soul? How is your soul? And it was so, so precious to hear from him. Brother, my soul is good, he said. My soul is good. Now listen, his joy and his... A sense of rejoicing wasn't because of his circumstances. It wasn't because of good health at that moment. It wasn't because he was comfortable there. He wanted to get get out of there, get out of Dodge, out of that, that hospital. But it was because of the fact that he understood his position in Christ. That his soul was secure in Jesus Christ. And beloved, that doesn't change. If you're genuinely in Christ, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what trials you're experiencing, no matter what the struggle or the fight against sin might be, you are secure in Christ. You need to rest in that wonderful assurance. Amen? This is so important for us as believers. You know, this was the heart of Paul for these Galatian believers, as we said last week. Paul wanted these Gentile Christians at the church of Galatia to experience assurance, to live in joy. And the legalists, these Judaizers, these false teachers were robbing these believers of this joyful assurance by adding works to Christ, by promoting and fostering a legalistic environment where these Christians needed to observe certain aspects of the Mosaic law, things like circumcision, things like observing certain laws and festivals and feasts and so forth. They were adding to Christ and in so doing, robbing them of their assurance and their joy in Jesus Christ. And so for four chapters, uh, Galatians chapters 1 through 4, Paul focuses on um, defending both his office as a minister of the gospel of grace, as well as defending the gospel of grace, the message itself, the purity of the gospel. And by the time he gets to chapter 5 and verse 1, as we said last week, Paul essentially says to these Christians, you are free in Christ. Stand firm in your position in Christ, he says. Hold the ground that Jesus has secured on the cross for your sins. He's done it. Stand your ground. And then he says, don't let them rob you of your freedom. Don't let them impose upon you a, a yoke that Christ has already dealt with on the cross. He's paid for your sins. And so these Christians were to reject legalism as they stood firm in Jesus Christ and hold their ground. But this morning, I want us to see the second of these exhortations that I called us to last week. Because we want, you to, we want you to see here that they were also to reject license as Christians. License to sin. That they weren't to think, because I'm redeemed, and because Jesus has bought me out of slavery to sin, and now I'm secure in Him, I have salvation, I've been forgiven, I'm made right with God, now I can live however I want. He counters that as well here in verse 13. So this leads us to our second exhortation that we must give heed to if we are to reject these sins of legalism and license in our lives as believers and be sanctified in Christ. Not only must we, first of all, stand firm in our position in Christ, but notice, secondly, you and I must live dependent in our practice on the Holy Spirit. We must live dependent in our practice on the Holy Spirit. Spirit. 
Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's going to expand upon that latter command of through love serve one another. Now listen, if the first exhortation of standing firm in our position in Christ revolved around the doctrine of justification, the second exhortation really gets us into the issue of the doctrine of sanctification. Remember what I told you last week about the doctrines of justification and sanctification, that they are interconnected, they are not to be separated, and yet at the same time, in practice, we must remember that they are to be distinguished. And I told you that justification is as easy as ABC. Remember that? That it's an act of God whereby He declares a sinner not only not guilty, but righteous in Christ. And then letter B. This declaration is on the basis of Christ's perfect life and atoning death on the cross. It's not applied to us by works. None of us can can merit God's favor. Jesus has died and paid the debt for our sins. Justification is on the basis of the person and the work of Christ. And then letter C. It's for those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who put their trust in Christ. Those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone. That's justification. But sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong process, right? Sanctification is progressive and continual. It's not point in time like justification is. A one-time act of God whereby He declares a sinner not only not guilty but righteous. Sanctification is the present ongoing process of becoming like Jesus And the Apostle Paul's concern is that not only these Christians stand firm in their security in Christ, but that in their practice, they live in dependence upon the power of the Spirit of God, and in so doing, reject license to sin in their lives, as they depend upon the Spirit of God. Now, how does he do this? How does he encourage them to live dependent upon the Spirit of God here in verse 13? Well, he gives them a caution, if you notice, and a command. There's a caution here and a command if you're taking notes. Look at verse 13 and the caution. For you were called to freedom, brethren. You're free in Christ. Four chapters, he's been defending this and has an explaining justification by faith. But then here's the word of caution. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Opportunity there into an occasion to the, the, uh, a base of operation for the flesh, he says. Literally, only not your freedom into a, an opportunity for the flesh. This is a caution. This is a warning against the sin of license for the believer. When before we know it, we can begin to talk more and more about our liberties, more and more our freedoms than we do our obedience before the Lord. And this kind of sin of license can happen in two primary ways. It can happen and can be seen in the overall attitude of, hey, I'm good with God. I'm good. I've been made right with God. He's forgiven me. He accepts me. So now I can live however I want. After all, He'll always forgive me if I sin. If I disobey, if I'm imperfect, who's perfect? He'll always forgive me based upon Jesus Christ. God loves me. That'll never change. And therefore, we use that as an excuse, as a license then, to disobey the Lord. But it can also show itself more subtly in our lives, right? For most of us, perhaps, it's this way. Where we become very comfortable in the Christian life. Where we become lethargic in the Christian life. Where we become passive in the Christian life. Where we sort of put on the Christian life and our walk with the Lord on on cruise control. We subtly adopt this attitude of let go and let God. Because after all, if it's all Him, then hey, throw my arms up in the air. He'll work through me. I don't have to really work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It was this attitude of license that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. If you go with me to Romans 6 for a minute. Back a few pages to Romans chapter 6. such an important passage for us as we pursue Christ-likeness in the Christian life. Paul has just heralded the amazing grace of God found in Jesus Christ who 
different than the first Adam who sinned and fell into transgression. The second Adam, Jesus, was victorious. And notice chapter 5 and verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's talking about the the greater um, man who is Christ, through whom grace triumphed. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? What shall we say to these things? Then he answers, strong language, may it never be, he says. That's strong language in the Greek. It's got the idea of by no means, certainly not, God forbid it, is the idea there. That we would use the grace of God, the grace shown in Christ Jesus as license to sin, Now notice how he appeals to them to live Christ-like here on the basis of their union with Christ. This is such a significant point. Don't miss this. He appeals to them to live Christ-like on the basis of their union with Christ. Look at verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's not talking about sinlessness in the Christian life. He's not talking here about physical death. He's talking about their death in union with Jesus. That they have been united to His death by which sin has been rendered powerless in the Christian life. In other words, sin is no no longer master over the believer. He will make this point later on. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, notice these prepositional phrases, into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? He's not talking there about water baptism the ordinance of water baptism, but spiritual baptism by which the Holy Spirit in regeneration has put them into Christ, right? By virtue of their union with Christ. Verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Please take note of of the language there. Into Christ Jesus, verse 3. Into his death with Christ. Elsewhere, Paul uses words like these, through Christ and in Christ. All of that language, beloved, is so, so important because it highlights the Christian, the believer's vital spiritual union and connection and fellowship with Jesus Christ. In fact, The beautiful truth of union with Christ appears or is alluded to more than 160 times in Paul's letters. And so think about this. When God saved you, you came into a spiritual, inseparable, indestructible union with Jesus. He is divine. You are the branch. You are in Him. He is in you. By the way, we are in union with one another, right? As believers, members of the body of Christ, we are in union with Christ, inseparably connected to Him in a spiritual way. Sinclair Ferguson comments that union with Christ lies at the heart of the Christian life, end quote. Union with Christ lies at the heart of the Christian life. It's so important in sanctification, in other words. Why is this? Because when you and I understand that Christ is in us, that we are in Him, that we belong to Christ, it will show itself in our practice in the way that we live. Inevitably, necessarily. Now go back to Galatians chapter 5. Paul has some strong words for these Galatian believers. And it's on the basis of this union with Christ that Paul has some strong warnings for them. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, in other words, you really trust that circumcision has some salvific um, significance, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, that is, he's talking about somebody who genuinely receives it because they believe that it's going to save them. That he is under obligation to keep the whole law. 
Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And then notice verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, meaning believers, Christians, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And here's this union with Christ's language again. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, what Paul is essentially saying here is, if you truly believe that these things justify you, you show that you were never truly connected in union with Christ. Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, right? Listen, I mention all of this about union with Christ because this is the background, union with Christ, for why Paul cautions these Christians in this way. In verse 13, you recall to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Why? Because now Christ is in you, you are in Him. You are in Christ, in union with Christ. And so there's the caution. But notice the command now in verse 13. Notice the command. What does our salvation free us to do if you and I are in union with Christ? He says... Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but here's the latter command. But through love, serve one another. It's a present tense command. Continually, habitually, serve one another. That word serve there is from doulos, from which we get servant or slave. Why has God, beloved, graciously rescued you and I from the shackles of our sin, from serving the great master of self and sin, so that you and I are now free to love Him and love others? That's why. We are commanded here not to use our freedom in Christ as license to sin, right? Exploiting others, living self-centeredly. But on the other hand, we are free to now love and serve other people. I love what Martin Luther once said, that God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, Christian, but our neighbor does. We're not free, beloved, to sin as we please. We are free to lovingly serve other people. John Stott puts it this way, quote, Christian freedom is not licensed to ignore God's desire for our holiness or love for Him and others, but rather to fulfill it, end quote. I love that. See, think about worldly freedom. Think about even the way that Americans in our country view liberty and freedom. Worldly freedom in our country means this, autonomy. I can do whatever I want. I'm not dependent on anyone else. I answer to no one. I make my own choices. It's my life. It's my decisions. Worldly freedom is reckless and unharnessed in our, in our culture, isn't it? It's reckless and unharnessed. There are no parameters, no standards. The standard is what makes me feel good and what benefits me, irrespective of how it hurts other people. Worldly freedom is reckless and unharnessed. Worldly freedom is self-centered, isn't it? It's my life, my decisions, my money, my possessions, my family, my career, my goals, my aspirations, mine, 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 all mine. That's worldly freedom. That's worldly liberty. But oh, spirit-empowered, spirit-enabled Christian freedom is radically different, isn't it? Radically different. It's freedom, beloved, from the shackles of sin to authentically love, to serve, to give, to sacrifice for God and others, all for His glory, not for ourselves. How amazing is this freedom? We're not our own. As Christians, we don't belong to ourselves. We are in union with Christ. We belong to Him. He is in us. And we are members of one another. We belong to one another in Christ And therefore, this command is that we lovingly serve one another, that we carry out the implications of who we are in our position in Christ in the way that we love and serve other people, not ourselves anymore. Christian freedom is radically different. Christ has redeemed us 
bought us from slavery to sin for himself. So that 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Christ died for all, so that they who live, that is in Christ, might no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who died and rose again on their behalf. We belong to Christ. Can I ask you this morning, is this the way that you view Christian liberty and Christian freedom? As freedom now from the shackles of sin so that you can actually love other people? That you can give your life self-sacrificially for the good of others? That's what love is, isn't it? Love is the self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another person. Not based upon what you get out of it. Is this how you view freedom? As a greater opportunity to love God and love others. Or do you, as a professing believer, seize upon your freedom in Christ, your liberties in Christ, to self-indulge? To serve yourself? To live for yourself? To undermine the clear-cut commands of God in His Word? And that anytime anybody talks about the commands of God's Word, oh, legalism, legalism, that's your cry. Is that you? Neither legalism nor license to sin are Christ-centered sanctification, right? The legalist lives thinking that it's up to him or her to stay on good terms with God. The person with the mindset of license to sin forgets that obedience is required of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Amen? The same Jesus Christian who went to the cross as an expression of His love to die on the cross for you and pay for your sins is the same Jesus who in John chapter 14, verse 15 also said, If you, follower of Me, love Me, you will keep My commandments. You will obey Me. If you love Me, you will do what I say. Isn't that what we tell any, any faithful parent will tell his, his kid at home? Listen, it's not about the rule. I want you to do this because you, from the heart, because you love your mom and dad, right? You don't want them to just kind of go through the motions. How much more our Heavenly Father, He wants us to obey Him because we love Him. Love is the great motivation for the Christian in sanctification. Jonathan Edwards referred to love as the, the chief affection of the true believer. The chief passion, the chief affection of the true believer is love for God. And when we love God, His commandments are not burdensome, right? We want to obey Him. We long to obey Him. Look at, just look at the emphasis on love here in, in Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, in your union with Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through what through love look at verse 13 for you were called to freedom brethren only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through what love serve one another what's the motivation for loving for serving other people love for them right love and obviously that's out of a heart of love for god first and foremost look at verse 22 What's the first fruit, singular, of the Spirit of God? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Look at verse... And then you can make the, the argument that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, those, these actions of restoring those who are in sin in verse 1 of chapter 6, of bearing others' burdens in verse 2, of sharing all good things with the one who teaches him in verse 6, those, all of these actions of restoring and bearing burdens and sharing all good things with one another materially are all um, acts of Spirit-empowered love, right? The Spirit of God working in and through the believer. The Christ, a Christian who has been justified by faith, beloved, and is being sanctified is growing progressively in love. And that is a Spirit-wrought thing in the heart of a, of a Christian. A spirit wrought thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Peter writing to suffering Christians. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent. Be passionate, eager, zealous in your love for one another is what he's saying. 
And in John chapter 15 and verse 12, Jesus said in the upper room, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And the next day He showed the extent of His love by going to the cross, right? Dying for our sins. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. A genuine child of God, says John, will look like his papa, right? And our Heavenly Father is a God of love. So we as His children should be people who are growing by His grace in love. In love. So Paul says, God has freed you from sin's penalty and power that you would lovingly serve others. That is the imperative, continual command. You want to talk about Christ-centered sanctification? We often talk about people who are godly and people who are Christ-like, and we have all kinds of ways that we define what, what godliness means. People who know a lot of information, people who can quote scripture to you left and right, and all of these other things, people who dress a certain way, people who look externally a certain way, people can, who have certain abilities. But you want to know and talk about Christ-centered sanctification? How is your love life? How is your love life? I'm not talking about this wishy-washy, half-in, half-out, emotional kind of love. I'm talking about a, a substantial love, biblical love. How is your love life right now, Christian? I'm not talking about your marriage or your romantic life, okay? Some of you already smiled. What do you mean by that? Oh, you single people. I'm asking you, how fervent, how passionate, how intense is your love for other people that fleshes itself out in Self-sacrificially serving other people. That's what love is, right? Love is the self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the good or the benefit of others. How is your loving service towards others? What about you, husband? Are you, are you lovingly serving your wife at home? What about you, wife? Are you pleased to, to serve your husband in the context of the home? What about you, young or older children? Do you lovingly serve your parents in the home or serve your siblings? What about in the workplace? Do you have a servant's heart in the workplace? What about with non-believers? Do we go out of our way to do good works so that we might have an opportunity to share Christ with them and tell them about why, why things are so different in our life as opposed to somebody else's? Not because we're a good person, but because of Christ's merits, right? How is your love life? Now notice, he makes the point that in this command that it's not going to be easy, right? There's an ongoing battle waging. Look at verse 16. Is it going to be easy to love and to give ourselves for the good of others? No, there's a battle. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And here's the battle described, verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Opposition, anti-ketai, against one another. These are polar opposites, the Spirit of God and the flesh. So that you may not do the things that you please. There's a battle waging. Do you feel it every day? I feel it every single day. I long to serve. I long to love God and love other people. I long to do it genuinely and authentically. But every single day I struggle with my selfishness and my self-centeredness. Every day. You know what these verses, this verse also tells me, verse 17 in this battle, that there's no neutrality in the Christian life. Did you hear that? There's no room for naive passivity, complacency, indifference in your pursuit of holiness. We are told that we're either making progress by walking by the Spirit, or we are digressing by giving in to our flesh. Going one way or the other. The flesh in this context is not referring to our physical bodies, note that, but to the Christian life lived independent of the Spirit of God. 
That's what the flesh is here. In contrast to dependence on the Spirit, the person who is walking in the flesh is living out of their own strength, independent of the Spirit, by their own resources. We carry out the desires of our flesh in action when we walk in self-dependence and self-reliance. If we're living this way, giving into the flesh, look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, that is plain or clear, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, meaning there are many others, this is just a sampling, right? Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, listen to this, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Underline that word there, practice. Present tense. Those who continually, habitually, as a pattern of life, live in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. There are professing Christians who say, hey, don't question that I'm, not, that I'm not a Christian. Don't judge me. Who do you think you are? Nobody's perfect. But when you honestly, lovingly, and help, helpfully look at their life, which more often than not reflects their own heart, it's very evident that they don't know or love Christ, right? It's possible, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it best, for a person to profess Christ, but not possess Christ. It's possible for a person to profess Christ, but not possess Christ. And yes, Christians are imperfect. Christians fail. Christians struggle with sin, even fall into sin. But the Christian longs to be like Christ. Amen? The Christian wants to know and obey Jesus. The Christian desires to love God by loving His people, even though we will often be self-centered and selfish. There are affections for Christ in the, human, in the heart of the believer. There's a huge difference between struggling with sin, even hating your sin, and living in sin. Giving in to your sin. Being comfortable with your sin. Loving your sin. Enjoying your sin. There's a big difference, isn't it? If that's you, what makes you think that you're saved? What makes you think that you're saved this morning if that's you? It's not that you've lost your salvation. You can't lose our salvation. It's that you never had it. You never had it. Listen, today is the day of salvation. If that is you, acknowledge to God that you are a sinner and that you need the forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ today. Don't continue to live a life of hypocrisy. Ask God to change you from within. And there's no such thing, by the way, as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Christians can certainly conduct carnally, if you want to put it that way, or in the flesh, but that is not the identity or the pattern of the true believer. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. If you have friends that say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian, or they talk along those lines, chances are they're not a Christian if they're living in sin, comfortably in their sin. What do they need? They need Christ. They need to be saved. They need to be regenerated. They need to experience the new birth, don't they? John Owen puts it this way, that for the Christian, our sin is now a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. I like that. For the Christian, our sin is now a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. Now notice, God never commands something that He hasn't given us the power to carry out, right? So how do we carry out this, loving, this command to lovingly serve one another? It's by living in dependence upon the Spirit of God, right? Here is the key to growing and being sanctified in Christ, beloved. Not being dependent upon the flesh, but notice the emphasis on the Spirit here. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I love this. You see that word not in verse 16? And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh? 
There's actually a double negative in the Greek. Ume, not, not. You will absolutely not, emphatically, he's saying. If you walk by the Spirit, you will absolutely not carry out the desires of the flesh. What is the key to not walking in the flesh? Following the Spirit. Submitting ourselves to the Spirit of God, right? Look at verse 18. But if you are led, being led by the Spirit. Verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk or follow the Spirit. All of these references to the Spirit tell us that now as Christians, we need to live dependent on the Spirit of God. We submit to Him. We are controlled by Him so that we are sanctified by the Spirit of God. It's an issue of control, isn't it? We don't give in to our sinful impulses. We give ourselves over to the control of the Spirit. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul put it this way, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be being filled with the Spirit. It's a passive voice, something that happens to us. We merely submit ourselves to the filling of the Spirit of God, to being controlled by the Spirit of God, dominated by the Spirit of God. And what will naturally and necessarily follow? Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, there it is again, our position, our identity in Christ, the Spirit of God has given us life, let us also walk or follow the Spirit. In other words, Christian, live like who you are. Live in the light of your identity in Christ under the power of or by the power of the Spirit of God. In dependence upon the Spirit of God. What does living dependent on the Holy Spirit look like in practice? There are means that the Spirit of God uses to sanctify us, right? I hope that you're already thinking along these lines. At the top of the list is the Word of God, right? The sword of the Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 6. So if we, you and I want to live dependent on the Spirit so that we are sanctified, you and I must be Word-saturated people. Word-saturated the Spirit doesn't primarily work through our emotions, our experiences. The Spirit doesn't work outside or in contradiction to His Word, but consistent with His work, right? The Spirit of God works through the Word of God. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. How are we conformed to the image of Christ? By means of the Word of God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does the Spirit of God sanctify us? By the renewing of our minds in accordance with the Word of God. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ, believer, Christian, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. The idea there is let it make its home in your heart. Not just visiting, not just passing through, but let it make its home in your heart. Oh, that takes more than just reading the Word every day, doesn't it? It takes memorizing the Word and, and meditating upon the Word, chewing on the Word all day long, being God-conscious by means of His Word that has been put in our hearts by means of memory and meditation. Be Word-saturated if you want to live in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And we need to respond to the Word in submission and obedience as well, right? To be a Word-saturated believer doesn't just mean that, oh, I love the Word. It makes me feel so good. Every day I just go to it because it makes me feel good about myself. Listen, I don't know what you're getting from the Word if that's your thinking. We go to the Word of God and we delight in the Word of God, beloved, so that we also respond in loving submission and obedience to the Word of God, right? And as we do that, the Spirit of God sanctifies us. We ought to have the heart of Jeremiah, who said in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, 
in the midst of very difficult circumstances. He said this, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. In other words, I appropriated your words to my heart and life. They are my delight. They satisfy me. I delight in your word. That was a word-saturated person, right? Jeremiah. Secondly, be prayerful. Be prayerful. What does it mean to live dependent upon the Spirit of God? Be word-saturated and be prayerful. We ought to be people who are private and public, daily communion with God, daily communication with our Heavenly Father, right? Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of, of spiritual warfare and the fact that we need to appropriate God's resources. And oftentimes in that passage on spiritual armor, we stop short of what Paul says in Ephesians 6 verses 19 and 20. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And he calls them to be alert in prayer and pray for the progress of the gospel. But he says, all and all at all times, pray for everyone. Be on the alert with all petition for all the saints. Continually in prayer, we ought to be. We've seen this in the life of our Lord Jesus in the gospels, haven't we? That Jesus, though the eternal Son of God, the God-man, was constantly in prayer and depending upon His Heavenly Father. If Jesus needed to be with His Father in daily communion, though perfect, though blameless, how much more us who are weak, who are flawed, who are imperfect. Be prayerful. Be prayerful. Third, be fighting your sin. Be fighting your sin. To live dependent upon the Spirit of God is not is not fleshed out in this attitude of, I'm going to let go and let God. Over and over again, in the New Testament in particular, we are told that the Christian fights a two-front battle, right? Of putting off like filthy clothing the old way of life and putting on, practically speaking, Christ-likeness. For some of us, that means that we need to take drastic measures against our sin. Oh, some of you are struggling with some destructive sins as a, as a Christian in private. Maybe you haven't even been honest with people about those sins. Listen, you need to put off those sins by the grace of God. You need to starve your sin. Jesus talked about putting off our sin by taking drastic measures to starve our sin, right? Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What was Christ talking about? That putting sin to death requires us to take severe, desperate measures against our sin, right? And why are we able even to do that, beloved? Because we have the energy and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God doesn't command us to do something that He hasn't given us the ability and the power to do. For the believer, He is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. And it's not just a putting off, but also a putting on. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, Timothy, flee from youthful lusts on the one hand, and on the other hand, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Fight your sin. Christian, be fighting your sin by the grace of God and in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And that's a putting off and putting on two-front battle. Can I add another one here? Be connected to the church. Be connected to the church. Some people think, well, it's just the Spirit of God in me. I don't need the church. Wrong. Nobody can become everything that God has called you to be as a Christian if you are not an active participant in the local church. Let me ask you this morning. Are you accountable to other Christians in a local church? Are you accountable? How many Christians, I can't tell you how many Christians want to become like Jesus, but they live in isolation from the church, away from other believers. 
Second Timothy 2.22, the passage, the verse I just read, Paul tells Timothy, now flee from youthful lusts, Timothy, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And listen to this, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We need other people in this endeavor, don't we? Of pursuing Christ-likeness. We need to be accountable to others. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we anticipate the coming of Christ, seeing our Savior, we are helping one another finish the Christian race. Finally, let me remind us of where we started last week. Be strong, beloved, in grace. Be strong in grace. Never forget that, even, that whether it's our spiritual disciplines, our faithfulness, our obedience, all of those things, we cannot do those things apart from the grace of God. Amen? This is grace from beginning to end. Christianity is God through us. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Listen to these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And then Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need it's by grace that we're saved it's by grace that we're sanctified it's by grace that god will sustain us all the way until the end amen it's all by the grace of god neither legalism nor license are christ-centered sanctification and we need to remember that god has freed you and i believer from sin's penalty and from sin's powerful grip so that you and i stand firm in who we are in christ And we live dependent upon the Spirit of God that we might be more and more like Jesus. Amen? May God help us do that. After I pray, my brother Tim's going to come up and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, help us to be people who are dependent upon you. We're reminded this morning of the destructive sins of legalism in our lives. And on the other hand, license, where we treat your grace as cheap. Father, guard us from one or the other, and that when we see glimpses of one or the other or both, that we would be quick to repent of that and return back again to who we are in Christ, that we might live to become more and more like Jesus in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.